message from the Word will be Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In the Red Bibles in the pew in front of you, it's page 939. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want to again echo what Brother Kevin said earlier in, in saying that you are our honored guest and we're so thankful that you're with us. We uh, really truly believe that you are in a special place with a special group of people, not, not as though this building or this campus is anything special, but especially that the people here that make up this church, that make up this congregation of the Lord's church are a special group of people, and we encourage you to get to know many of the people here, as many as you can, and let us get, get a chance to get to know you as well. Along with that, as being a visitor, you may not know what we're in the midst of. We are in the midst of a series uh, that is entitled Core Curriculum, and for the past several weeks, we have been engaging in a study of what we believe are some of the most important, not as though there's any book that's more important than another, but some of the most important books that we need to understand as fundamental texts for us in helping to grow and establish our faith. And so this morning, as we come to the book of Romans, that's what we'll be studying from today. We'll be de delving into that text and spending all of our time there. And so I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles to particularly Romans chapter 1, as we just began in our scripture reading a moment ago from Kellen and talking about the righteousness of God in verse number 17. We might say, if we were to sum up the entire book of Romans, that what Paul is trying to get across in his message as inspired by the Holy Spirit is that God's plan through Jesus Christ is what ultimately reveals and, and shows to us his righteousness. We can read the gospels and we have four of those gospel accounts to tell us what it was that took place over the course of history. We could even read into the Old Testament how God brought Jesus into the world and how he planned that from the beginning and how ultimately through the gospels he was crucified in those gospel accounts. We read about those things. But as we come to the book of Romans, we have it described for us and revealed to us why it is that God planned it this way and why it was that God needed for Jesus to die in order to be righteous. Now, several hundred years ago, before Christ walked upon the face of the earth, there was a man named Socrates. And he kind of, at least it became known of him, that in one of the ways in which he taught was through asking questions. They're asking questions, became known as Socratic questioning. And, one of the, and so as you ask someone a question, the idea is that you're trying to get them to think about a particular line of reasoning so that they might be able to come to the conclusion that hopefully you're trying to lead them to. As you look at the book of Romans, Paul, by my count, no less than 80 times or so, asks questions throughout this book. And thankfully, in most of the cases, right away, he gives us a very direct answer to that question. But in, in that vein, we, there's no way that we could really cover all 16 chapters this morning of the book of Romans. And I'm not going to, right, give an 80-point sermon to try to one-up John's 39-point sermon from a few weeks ago from the book of Romans. So what we're going to do this morning is examine five of those questions. Now, we're, we're 
in transparency here in a little bit, some of those questions are actually more than one question, but it's in a series of questions. We're going to count them as one, okay? So five questions that I believe every person should examine and ask from the book of Romans that will help us to understand what God's plan is for us and how it is that his plan through Jesus Christ makes him righteous. And so I want us first and foremost to consider from Romans chapter number two. Open your Bibles. I want you, these verses will be on the screen, but much of what we'll continue to examine will be not on the screen, will be in the text there. So <clears throat> Romans chapter two, I want us to notice first that the book of Romans emphasizes the reality of the judgment. The reality of the judgment. Notice the first question that we have before us in verse number three. Romans chapter two and verse number three. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now this question comes on the heels of chapter number one in which he just talked about the fact (coughs) that the Gentiles were sinful and that God had given them over to those sinful things, that he ultimately was going to inflict judgment upon them for those ways in which they've been living. However, as he's writing to these Christians who were of a Jewish heritage, what he's communicating to them is, you're looking at those Gentile Christians or those Gentiles and you're saying, why do you think that even though they're sinning, that you're sinning the same way, why do you think that you're going to escape the judgment? And so as you see this particular question, I want us especially today, to ask ourselves the question, do you suppose, O man or O woman, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? It's a question worth asking. It's a question that all of us need to ponder and think about and recognize that there will one day come a judgment. The book of Hebrews says that it is appointed once for man to die and after that, the judgment. As we think about the judgment, I want us to continue looking around this particular text and even further about the reality of the judgment. I want us to recognize in chapter two and verse number two that we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Or as other translations render it, he rightly judges. He does it in a righteous way. And so as you think about righteous judgment, let us understand and recognize that when we recognize that we will stand before God in judgment, it is going to be done in a righteous manner. And that's, that's a good thing to think about if we are standing before him as righteous individuals, but it's also a fearful thing to think about as we stand before him as sinful individuals. And so recognize It is righteous. It's not just righteous in the sense that he will do it in the right way, but it's also righteous in the sense that he is doing it for the right reason. As such, as we think about the fact that sin is is an affront to God, it's an affront to his holiness. It separates us from him, Isaiah 59, one and two. And as we think about that sin, it is righteous for God to judge us. You know, some in the world might look at this idea of the judgment and say, they might say, why is God such a good God? Why do you claim for him to be such a good God when he's going to judge us? Isn't judging a bad thing the world might think? But when we think about God being perfect and holy and righteous and good, he cannot dwell. He cannot be in the presence of that which is sinful. He cannot be okay with or condone that which is sinful. And he therefore must righteously judge it. Notice verse number six, he will render to each one according to his deeds. 
he will render to each one according to his deeds. But it's not just righteous, it's also universal. We've already alluded to it just a moment ago, but look at chapter 2, verse number 11. He says, there is no partiality with God. You know, sometimes we might, whether you're a teacher or a coach, sometimes you have the teacher's pet or the coach's pet, you know, sometimes we might inflict as a coach or as a teacher maybe greater punishment on a student or a a player that maybe gets under our nerves a little bit more or on our nerves a little bit more. But it's not the case with God. God renders this judgment. He executes this judgment, not only in a righteous way, but in a universal way in which he will do it without partiality. But that's also to say that he will do it, he will render this judgment to all people. As you continue looking at chapter number three and verse number 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. So it is to say that everyone is going to face this judgment. Not a single person can stand before God and claim that they are righteous, that they have lived a sinless life. Chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is righteous. It is universal. It is certain. Turn closer to the end of the book. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter number 14, beginning in verse number 10, Paul says, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? Verse 12, verse 10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, now notice this, as I live, says the Lord. Sometimes we say, as sure as the day is long, fill in the blank. You know, as certain as we can say the day is long, we know that this is gonna happen. Think about it this way. As I live, says the Lord. There is without a doubt, there is a certainty, going all the way back to Romans chapter number one, that God lives and he reigns over us. As sure as God lives, what does he say? Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. You know, sometimes we sing the song, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. We sing that gospel hymn, right? And we, we're talking about this judgment. We'll all be standing before God in judgment. It's like this roll call will be, will be announced. You know, Jordan Moore, and you have to stand up before God in judgment in that sense. And I know it's kind of a, a literary way, a, a poetic way of, of putting it. When I think about this, it reminds me of the story that my granddad never told me, but I heard many times about him from other people. When he was in school, when he was in grade school, It was in the 1940s or so, and it was a very small town in Dripping Springs, and it was a two-story building, a two-story school building in which all of the K through 12 was in the one classroom together, and I think the administrative offices were down below. And whenever there was a substitute teacher that day, my granddad, believe in junior high or so, thought it would be a, a funny prank to pull, that when it was time for the roll to be called, that he would open the window when the teacher wasn't looking and grab that two-story window Eve and hang out from that outside window while she was calling roll. Now, mind you, the substitute teacher had already seen him and knew he was there that day, but whenever it came time for his name to be called, he was nowhere to be found and she couldn't figure out where he'd gone. He was hanging outside that window. He was trying to escape the roll call. There's not going to be any type of escaping the roll that is called up yonder. As we think about the judgment that is going to be called, some people think that they might be able to escape the judgment because 
Well, they're of the right lineage. That was the case for these Jewish Christians. They thought, well, I'm of the stock of Abraham and and of David, and I've come from this this long Jewish lineage, and so therefore, that judgment, I don't have to face it just like those Gentiles will. Those of us that maybe were raised in the church, maybe sometimes we fall prey to that kind of mindset. Well, I've always gone to church my whole life, and I was brought up in the right church, and I was brought up in this and that. So the judgment, that's for those people outside in, that world, in the world out there. Do you suppose, oh man, that you will escape the judgment? Some people think they might escape the judgment because, or at least they'll act like they will, because they just ignore it. They don't think about it. Maybe you follow in that category. Maybe you just pretend like it's not coming, and so therefore you don't think about it and don't have to worry about it, but rest assured, the judgment is coming. And yet still there are others that think that they might escape the judgment because they think that they can be good enough to get through the judgment. And as we're gonna talk about next, there's no getting through the judgment by just being good enough. Not a single one of us can ever be good enough. And so as you think about that, look at the next verse in Romans chapter two as we turn back there. The book of Romans emphasizes the reality of the judgment by first asking us this question, do you suppose that you will be able to escape the judgment? But notice next that the book of Romans emphasizes the magnitude of God's gift. The magnitude of God's gift. Consider this question. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It might be said that when we ignore the fact that the judgment is coming or we think that the judgment is something we don't have to worry about, that ultimately that might lead us down the path of thinking lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience. That is his mercy, his grace, his marvelous gift that he has given to us. The question of you again this morning, just as the question was before, do you suppose that you will be able to escape the judgment? The question for you now is, the question for me is, do I think lightly of God's mercy and grace? Consider this. Romans chapter three, this question that we just considered really kind of begins this long series, uh, this long explanation of what God's plan was or what God's purpose is in sending his son Jesus. And as we come to Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26, we have a marvelous section of scripture, perhaps my favorite text in all the Bible. Romans chapter three, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, again, this is what this whole book is about. Going back to Romans chapter one, verse number 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. You keep seeing that over and over and over again. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now notice verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
not in himself, but in Jesus. And so to illustrate this, perhaps you have seen this before. I know John has used this illustration, and I believe it is, it's warranted that we use it again to describe and explain how it is that God justifies us. When we think about the ju- being justified by a system of law, justified by works, it is as though there is this scale, this law scale that is from zero to ten. And how well do you measure up to keeping of that law? Spoiler alert, as we've already spoiled it from a previous point, chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 23 point to the fact that not a single one of us will ever and can ever measure up. And so we have an option to choose. We can say, that's the way that I want to be justified. I'm going to do my very best to try to be justified by my own works, by my own living, by my own good deeds, but we will fall short every single time. Alternatively, God gives us this option to be justified by faith through a system of grace. That is, you and I, again, we will never measure up to the law and being able to be perfect in our law keeping, but through this system of grace, we have revealed to us and given to us this marvelous, magnificent gift from God in which Jesus makes up the difference. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Jesus makes up this difference, and in this manner, we can stand before God as though we are justified. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so in a sense, we stand justified by God because of what Jesus has done. He makes up that difference for us. And though, as we think about that, I want us to turn back to the question Go back to Romans chapter two and look at the question again and notice the end of verse number four. This is a wonderful, wonderful piece of news, is it not? We were just talking about the fact that we will be standing before God in judgment and we cannot escape it and yet here comes Jesus to save the day. What great news that is. Should it be the case that I, well, I'll never measure up to the law and so why, why even try? Why even try? But notice what he says in verse number four at the end. Do you think lightly of the riches of the goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Which brings us to question number three this morning. When we don't take lightly the things of what God has done for us, we will be led to repentance. The book of Romans number three this morning emphasizes the importance of right living. And so we just alluded to it a moment ago. Here's the question. Question number three from Romans chapter six, verse number one. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We have this marvelous, magnificent gift of God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ, and all we have to do is have faith in him. Shall we then continue in sin that grace may be abounding even more? What's Paul's answer? Chapter six, certainly not. Certainly not. 
the goodness of God's riches and his marvelous grace lead us to repentance. Notice verse two of chapter six. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Here's the key. When we chose that law system of grace, not the system of law, but the system of grace, we chose to die to sin. The importance of right living. When one becomes a Christian, a sinner dies. Notice verse three. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So a sinner dies. But not only that, a new life is started. Look at verse number four. Therefore we were buried with him through Christ, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The old man of sin is put to death. He's buried in that watery grave of baptism. That's the significance of baptism. It's not as though we are trying to earn or merit our salvation, but it is at that point in which our sins are washed away that that sinner becomes put to death. And in that resurrection, here's where we get this whole idea from, Romans chapter six, in that resurrection out of the watery grave of baptism, we become a new creation, a new creature. The burden of sin is lifted from our shoulders. We have a clean conscience before God, 1 Peter 3, verse 21. A new life is started and as such, a new, a new allegiance is pledged. A new allegiance is pledged. Look at verses 11 through 14. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but rather present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I saw online this week that one person wrote this. He said, if the Jesus that you serve likes all the things that you already like and hates all the things that you've already hated all your life, then that's probably not the Jesus of the Bible. If you become a Christian and, well, Jesus, he likes all the things that I already like and he hates all the things I already hate, you probably don't understand the idea or the concept of repentance and transformation and change that we have put the old man of sin to death and we have become a new creation. Putting it this way, if your life looks the same way that it did before or if you're not doing anything different than you've ever done before, then you do not understand the concept of repentance. What does he say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Certainly not. This does not mean that we will become sinlessly perfect. This does not mean that when you become a Christian that you are expected to never mess up. But what it does mean is that we have put that way of life to death, that we have made a new pledge, a new allegiance to the fact that I will no longer live that way. Yes, we will slip up at times. Yes, we will stumble at times. Yes, we'll slip down that, the, the ladder a few rungs at times. But so long as we're staying on that ladder and moving forward as we're walking in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us. Look at 1 John teaches. And so no, 
We will not be sinlessly perfect, but yes, we have made a new pledge of allegiance to God with righteous living. So the question is, again, are you continuing in sin in hopes that grace may abound? Question number four this morning, or questions as we'll put it on the screen. The book of Romans emphasizes our wonderful confidence in him. Isn't this great? Isn't this an awesome news, uh, piece of news, uh, an awesome message to, to be able to, to hear, to know that though we would stand before the judgment of God, that we have been able to be justified through his son, Jesus Christ, and that as he has buried us with him in the water grave of baptism, we have an opportunity to walk a completely new life, to have those burdens lifted off of our shoulders. Isn't that great news? Well, it doesn't end there. There's even great news beyond that. Consider Romans chapter number eight. Verse number 31, what then shall we say to these things? Not only all the things that he'd just been saying in the previous seven or eight chapters, but even now in the most uh, immediate context as he's talking about the hope that we have of the resurrection, point you back to last week's Sunday night sermon, thinking about the resurrection and the redemption of our bodies. We think about the hope of heaven that we have. Ultimately, as we think about these things, if God is for us, who? can be against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? But I don't want to end there because there's a series of other questions that are found in this text that I think are so highly encouraging that as we think about the blessings that come through him, continue reading with me, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about this marvelous, wonderful text as just the cherry on top, the icing on the cake to the fact that we have not just the hope that our sins are forgiven, but that beyond that, when we go to our grave in death or if the Lord returns first, that we have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of no longer being able to deal with pain and difficulty and sorrow and torment here in this life. Think about it this way. Our wonderful confidence in him helps us to remember that anything can be faced with God. Anything can be faced with God. We've talked about physical struggles, whether it be ailments or difficulties. We'd also, as we go back to the immediate context, going back to all the way to verse number 18, talking about the present suffering, the difficulties that they were dealing with, perhaps with persecution. They shall not, are not worthy to be compared with the things that are to come. That, as, that is to think that anything can be faced with God. If God is for us, who can be against us? But not only that, everything we need, God provides Ephesians chapter number one, we know that all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. 
And as we think about he who did not spare his own son, verse 32, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, this is not to say that if we pray to God for a million dollars that he's going to give us a million dollars. But the things that we truly need in this life, the things that are really important, the things that we actually are in need of, God will provide. And even beyond that, when it comes time for the judgment day, he will provide his son as that which makes up the difference for us and welcome us in to his eternal home. Everything we need, God provides and nothing, nothing can thwart God's plan for us as his people No one can rip us out of his hand. No one can cause him to not love us any longer. He will always love us. This doesn't mean, again, that we can't walk away from God and fall from grace because of our own choices, our own doing. But if we will just but submit to him, nothing can separate us from the love of God. What a wonderful confidence. Don't you want to share this with others? Don't you want to tell others the good news about it? Don't you want everyone in the whole world to hear these wonderful things? There's nothing better. Which brings us to our final thought. The book of Romans emphasizes our supremely important mission. Our supremely important mission. As you think about Romans chapter number 10, there's a series of questions beginning in verse number 14. Romans chapter 10, verse number 14. This is an answer to... In many ways, verse number 13 that says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we said, God wants everyone to be saved. All they have to do is call on his name. Now, some have have perverted that to say, all you need to do is just say the sinner's prayer. We don't find that anywhere in the Bible. The idea of calling on the name of the Lord is to seek him out and to ask for his forgiveness by following and and obeying what he's commanded of us, not as though we're meriting our salvation, but rather we are responding to the gift that he has offered to us. Here's the question. How then shall those people that are not saved, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now I recognize verse 15 is a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around. What does the feet of a preacher have to do with anything? And certainly, are they, any, are they really beautiful? I can tell you there's a reason you won't find me in flip-flops. And that's not just because, as one man said, how are you going to defend your family in flip-flops? But also because, well, I don't really think too highly of the, the, the aesthetics of my feet, as you might say. This is not in reference to the physical looks of someone's feet as much as it is in reference to Isaiah 52. Paul is quoting a scripture here in which in Isaiah there is this promise of the coming of the release of those that were in captivity that there would be this image of someone that is coming, running across the mountains of Judea, his feet running across the mountains of Judea to share this good news that we are able to go home. We're able to return home to Jerusalem. And how beautiful are the feet of those that are going about spreading that good news. Brethren, we have the best news to share. The news of Jesus Christ and our feet are beautiful, not because of the way they look, but because of what they're doing when we run to tell others the good news about him. 
And that's not limited to the preacher because what I'm about to say may sound a little bit self-serving. But here's the thing. Preaching is the most important thing that you will ever do. Now, I don't mean that to say that you have to stand here in the pulpit and preach, but what I mean is evangelism, teaching, that's what that word in the original language, preaching here in Romans chapter 10, is about evangelizo, the idea of sending or going and telling the gospel, the good news, and every one of us has that responsibility. Every one of us has that supremely important mission. Don't you want everyone to know what you know? As we conclude, think about these things. Why is this mission so supremely important above all other mission, above all other purpose in this life? Because the lost won't be saved unless they believe. The lost won't be saved unless they believe. They won't believe unless they hear. And they won't hear unless we preach. So that brings us back this morning as we close to Romans chapter number one. And Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The question for each of us, though not written in the book of Romans, the final question I want to pose for us is this. Am I ashamed of the gospel? Ashamed to the point where I won't share it where I won't tell others about this good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me and how he makes up the difference and how I, through him, can have faith that he will be able to do what I can't do for myself. Don't you want everyone to know it? This morning, maybe you know it and yet you have continued to live in sin. You haven't chosen to accept this gift that God has extended toward you by stepping out into faith and trusting that in the water of your grave of baptism, he will wash away your sins and you'll come up a new creation. Why wait? The judgment, as we've talked about, could be this very hour. It could be before you go to pill your head tonight that you are in a car accident or some other terrible thing to the point that you will be standing before God in judgment in eternity because of the way that you have lived up to this point being separated from him, don't delay. You cannot escape the judgment. Obey the Lord. Seek after him. Do the things that he wants you to do. Being obedient to him and becoming righteous through his son, Jesus Christ. Or perhaps you are a Christian already and you have allowed yourself to continue in sin in hopes that grace may abound. Don't do that any longer. The answer to that question is certainly not. We should not continue in sin. The grace may abound. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, we ask that you come. As together we stand as we sing.